in a, in a cold sweat up here. Um, I've, I've noticed as the, the pew Bible, uh, the big Bible and the lectern is open in front of me here, Psalm 119, as you know, is a very long biblical psalm, and it's, it's built around the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So I'm, I'm just seeing the Hebrew alphabet open in front of me here, and it's, it's bringing back bad memories uh, of Hebrew course I, I did uh, at Regent. Um, yeah, I'm glad we speak English most of the time. Psalm 120, it would be good if you had that open in front of you this evening page 622. Let's pray just for God's help as we come to his word. Father God, we come this evening to a part of your word that has had a a very living experience for, for many people, particularly for your people Israel. Lord, these, these psalms are, are the hymns uh, of, of your people. Lord, we thank you for, for these words that have brought so much power and meaning to people for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we pray that as we look at them this evening, we'd hear not just interesting words, but your word, that your spirit would come and speak to us powerfully as we begin this, this series of reflections on these songs of ascent. Come and, and speak to us your word, not, not your word for the dim and distant past, but your word for us tonight in this place. Amen. We live, as you know, in an instant culture. We drink instant coffee. Uh, we can have cash at any moment in an instant uh, from a hole in the wall. It used to frustrate me. I don't know if, if any of you are people who still go to the bank to get your, mom, to get your money. My mum was like that. She didn't use a, a cash machine. And I thought, goodness, mum, like, how much time do you have in your hands that you can go and queue in the bank every time you want some money? Uh, I think it was uh, an indicator of how much our society has become instant, how frustrated uh, I was by that notion. Um, One area where the world has just massively taken off is communications. Used to be if you wanted to communicate with somebody in Australia, it would take you maybe two months to send your letter there. Uh, They might reply and and two months for the reply to, to come back to you. So it would take four months to get a message to Australia and back, and now we can do that in four minutes. Send somebody an email, they reply. I think it's brilliant to live in this kind of a, an instant society. There's so much ways in which we don't have to waste time anymore. But there are dangers for, for all those of us who live in an instant society. And the dangers I'm interested in this evening are the dangers that pose a threat to people of faith. One of the great dangers, I think, is for people of faith living in an instant society because we imagine that just as we can do most other things in our life in an instant, we imagine that we can grow and develop our life with God in an instant too. We imagine that anything that can be done can be done almost immediately. 
So we're always on the lookout for a quick fix in our life with God. We hope that hearing the new big name speaker or reading that one latest, newest book or following some fashionable 40-day program, we imagine that these things are going to be the things that will help us, that will sort things out for us in our life with God. We'll try anything until something new comes along. Through the years, there have been people of God who have stood in stark contrast to that quick fix-it mentality, that, that fixation with the latest and the newest. And the Bible gives them two, two names, disciple and pilgrim. We already know a little bit about discipleship here at Kirkpatrick Memorial because I've made the biblical call to discipleship very much a bedrock of my ministry here. We have learned what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who apprentices themselves to the master, Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who's in a, a growing, learning relationship with Jesus that will continue for the rest of their days. The disciple learns not, not so much like somebody sitting in a classroom, but more like an apprentice joiner sits and watches the master at work and and learns from watching and then eventually from doing. This evening I want to introduce you to this other biblical image of a faithful believer. We're pilgrims. Whenever we say that a person's a pilgrim, we mean quite simply that they're on a journey, that they're going somewhere. So Christian pilgrims are people who are very clear that they're going to God We've taken Jesus at his word that he is the only way. Those directions that Jesus gave to Thomas and to the other disciples in the upper room, they've served the church better than all the, all the charts, all the maps, all the sat-navs that we've had throughout the history of humankind. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This evening, as we begin to explore this life of pilgrimage, I want to introduce you to what Eugene Peterson calls an old dog-eared songbook. Very soon we won't remember what songbooks are in the church because this kind of stuff here will maybe make them derelict altogether. The old songbook he's talking about is the one that Fiona's referred to already this evening, tucked away near the end of our Hebrew Psalter, it's the Songs of Ascent, a collection of 15 psalms numbered from 120 through to 134 in our Bibles. These 15 songs were, were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem for the, the great worship festivals. And if you, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, Jerusalem's the highest city geographically. So anybody making that journey, they, they have to climb, they have to ascend. And that's where these songs get their name, the Songs of Ascent. And a faithful Jew would make this Jerusalem pilgrimage three times a year. It's a world actually that most of us aren't that familiar with. It would have been very much the bread and the butter of, of Jewish community, but it, it's hard for us to get our heads around it. So I thought we'd have a quick look 
back to Exodus chapter 20, uh, 23. Turn to page 81, and we get a quick idea there of the, the journeys that God's people made to Israel three times a year for the great festivals. Look at verse 14 there in Exodus chapter 23. The Lord commands his people, three times a year you're to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now that's the feast that we know better as the Passover. It's where God's people celebrate the occasion when he rescued them from Egypt. So that's the first. And then celebrate the Feast of the Harvest. Now just to confuse matters, that's the feast that we know as Pentecost. And it's the feast where God's people end up celebrating the giving of the law. That's the second. And then the third of these feasts, celebrate the Feast of Ingathering. And this feast, just to confuse matters, got to be known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. In a sense, it's a bit like our harvest uh, festival. It's called Tabernacles because the people spent time living in tents. I always think the kids must have loved this one. Uh, For a week, you'd go and live in a tent to remind you of the time when when you were a nomadic people coming out of Egypt, living for years in the desert before making permanent home in the promised land. So those are the feasts. I don't want to worry you too much with the detail, but there are, are concrete feasts that the people are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, I want you to try and imagine what it would be like to be people who are going and making that journey Imagine how those feasts would shape your identity over the years. These Hebrew pilgrims, they'd be reminded year in and year out as they celebrated Passover that God had saved them. You couldn't be a Jew and not understand that. We are a saved people. They'd be reminded as well year in, year out at the Pentecost festival that they're a commanded people. God gave them the law at Sinai. They'd remember that year after year. They'd remember that they're a commanded people. And they'd be reminded year in and year out at the tabernacles that they're a blessed people. God's given them another harvest and they gather to celebrate that. So going to these festivals refreshed your memory year in, year out that you're a saved person, a commanded person, and a blessed person. These foundational realities would be preached, they'd be taught, and they'd be sung at the festivals. And I think this is something that we probably need to recover as God's people. Yeah, we we celebrate Christmas and Easter, but, but I'm not sure that we allow our celebrations really to shape our identity. Uh, we could learn a lot, I think, from the people of God in the Old Testament the way in which they celebrated their life with God and that fed them and nurtured them. So that's, that's where the people are going. They're going to these festivals and these 15 songs were the songs that we, uh, we think the pilgrims sung on their way to Jerusalem. They're songs for the road. Now we, we still use songs for the road. I tried to think about how we do that in modern culture. Primary school trips, any time we got on the Ulster bus to go for a day out somewhere, 
you wouldn't go far before somebody would get the singing going. If, if it was the right person got the singing going, it would all be appropriate and clean and nobody would end up in detention. If the wrong person got the singing going, it, it could go in a different direction. But always there'd, be, there'd always be a bit of singing when you were making a, a journey like that. The other context where, that came to my mind where we still use songs when we travel are sports fans. Whenever rugby fans or football fans are going to a, a match or a major final, they'll, they'll often sing on their way. Uh, they'll certainly sing in the terraces when they get there. Now, these songs are actually quite important. They form quite an important function. They remind us of two things primarily, who we are. You know, football fans aren't usually very clever. It, it helps them. To, to sing a song that reminds them which team they're supporting, just in case they forget halfway through. It reminds us who we are and, and where we're going. What's our purpose? And actually, th that's not a bad way uh, of thinking about these, these songs of ascent. They're traveling songs that remind God's people who they are and, and where it is they're going and what their purpose is. As we learn to follow Jesus Christ today, I'm going to suggest that these 15 traveling songs of God's people of the Old Testament will have some wonderful things to teach us as we pay attention to them in this series. They're going to give us the opportunity to remember who we are and where it is that we're going. So let's begin this evening with Psalm 120. As Tony Blair comes to the end of his time as Prime Minister, there's been a lot of debate, and I'm sure you've already heard some of it, about the, the merits and the shortcomings of the Blair government. As I've listened to those debates, I've heard many commentators accuse Blair and New Labour of, of unprecedented levels of political spin. You've probably heard that accusation. There, there seemed to be a short honeymoon period with New Labour in the late 90s. But then eventually the British population became as cynical of this government as they had been of all the governments that had gone before. We discovered that this government um, found it easier to talk a good talk than to deliver on all its promises. They have proved to be as trustworthy as all the other governments that we've had. And it seems that by this point in the, the, the reign of Tony Blair in 2007, People in Britain uh, are, are much less naive than we were all those years ago. We've realized once more that our culture is a place that's submerged in lies. The only thing that we believe in Britain in 2007 is that we can believe no one. Ironically, we're going to discover this evening that's a great place to be. It's a great place to start. A disgust with the world as it is, a strong dissatisfaction with the status quo, that can be a wonderful preparation for the life that God is calling us to. And that dissatisfaction, particularly when it develops into a longing for something better, becomes a wonderful springboard for the pilgrim path that goes to God. 
We need to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are in the world today before we're going to find motivation to live well with God. As long as we think that power sharing is going to sort out Ulster, we're not going to enter with any great gusto into a life with God. As long as we think that reducing our carbon footprint is all that this world needs to secure a a future, or as long as we think that another pay rise is all that we need to give us personal happiness, we're not going to bother in any convincing way with all the struggles and uncertainties of following Jesus Christ. We have got to be fed up with the way this world is before we're going to be willing to enter into a new world, the world that Jesus called the kingdom of God. Psalm 120 is just such a song. It's a song of a person who's sick of the world as they find it, sick of the lies that they've been told, but looking for something better. In the opening line, the psalmist said, I call on the Lord in my distress. The last word in the psalm is war. So this isn't a happy song. It's not the kind of of thing that would teach our children in Sunday school. But it's an honest song and a necessary one. It's honest because it reminds us that the world in which we live is one where people are in conflict. It's a world full of war and it's a world full of lies. We learn from an early age that it's a jungle out there. That it's dog eat dog. Our world is full of rivalry. People are always spoiling for a fight. No one seems to know how to live in healthy relationships. In our better moments, we realize that we were made for something better. If you look down at verse 7, the psalmist says, I'm a man or a woman of peace. But even then, it's not long before we realize that 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 longing for peace that we have, it's not encouraged and it's, it's not often our experience. I'm a man of peace, but when I speak, they're for war. A big part of the psalmist's frustration and what he protests against here in Psalm 2 is the realization that he's been lied to. That the world is not the place that it claims to be. Things aren't all right as they they claim to be. Things aren't getting better in the world. You know, that's the lie that we've grown up with. I don't know if you understand that. The lie of the modern world is that human beings are basically nice and good. That if we leave things as they are, the world will get better. And if not, if, there's a, if there are problems in the world, all we need to do is educate people better, throw a bit more government spending at it, and before long, the thing will sort itself out. The answers are all here because we're basically good and nice people. It's incredible that we keep believing these lies. Why do we? We have centuries of history that that give us evidence to the contrary, but no matter how much the evidence stacks up, we seem to want to cling to this hope 
that the world is a nice place, that things will get better. And whenever they don't, we end up shocked and disappointed. The Christian faith begins with a painful realization that this world is a place of corruption and a place of lies. Look at verse 2. The psalmist cries out to God, Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Rescue me from the lies of the advertisers who claim to know what it is that I want and what it is that I need. Rescue me from the lies of the entertainers who show me a shortcut, a cheap way to find joy. Rescue me from the lies of the politicians who lie to me to serve their own agendas and purposes. Rescue me, Lord God, from the lies of religious leaders, church leaders, who have left the way of the gospel and and have called me to some sort of human traditions, whether they're ancient, worn-out, dead ones, or whether they're the modern, shiny ones of today. Rescue me from anyone who points me to anything other than Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. That's the psalmist's prayer here in Psalm 120. The word Lord only crops up once in this short psalm. But once it crops up once, once we have named God once, His presence dominates the whole horizon of the whole thing. Once God is on the scene, all the lies are seen for what they are. They're just lies. Truth emerges finally when God appears in the scene. You see, the truth about me is that God made me and loves me. The truth about you and the people sitting in the pew beside you this evening is that God made you and loves you. The truth about this world is that God loves it and that he cares for it. The truth about what's wrong with the world is that you and, and I and our neighbors have, have turned from God. We've refused to give him a rightful place in our lives. And the truth about this world, what's right at the heart of it, is that Jesus came, died on the cross to save us from our sin, rose from the grave to give us a new life. That sin that he died to save us from is a reality, but his coming is also a reality. That's the truth that we can participate in. That's the new life that we have been called to. That, friends, is the only truth worth knowing. We need to be saved from all other stories, all other things that this world tells us, so that we can live in that truth. So the first step on this pilgrimage towards God, we're told in Psalm 120, to step away from something, away from the lies of the world. 
We begin the Christian life by, by renouncing the lies of the world so that we can accept the truth that God teaches us. Look at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. I haven't a clue what Meshech is or what Kedar is. Apparently, Meshech is a, it's a far-off place, far, far from Palestine, thousands of miles away in southern Russia. Kedar is much closer to home. It talks about a wandering Bedouin tribe on the borders of Israel. So, Meshech and Kedar, in a way, they represent the thing that's strange and unknown to us, but also the thing that's violent and threatening. So we might paraphrase the psalm something like this. Lord, I live among, among thugs and good-for-nothings in a world that I don't quite understand. This world isn't my home, and I want out. The Bible has a word for this process of saying no to the world so that we can say yes to God. And that word is repentance. It's always been the first word in the Christian life. We ought not to be surprised to find that, that repentance is the subject of Psalm 120. Think of, of some of the key moments in the biblical story. What did John the Baptist preach when he prepared the way for Jesus' coming? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus, what's the first thing he preached? All the biblical writers are agreed about this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Do you know what the first sermon of the, the church at Pentecost was? How did Peter conclude on Pentecost? Well, you can read it in Acts chapter 2. He concludes saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you. The biblical witness is entirely consistent. If we want to go to God, we've got to say no to all other ways of living. We begin our pilgrimage by repentance. What is repentance? What, what did you learn in Sunday school? What would your answer have been? I'm guessing we'd probably say repentance is being sorry for your sins. But that's not quite right. Repentance isn't an emotion. It's not being sorry for our sins. It's a very concrete decision. It's a decision to say everything that I believed about life up until now is wrong. Repentance is, is making a decision that although I've lived my life always traveling pretty much in this direction, I've realized that that's wrong and I need to turn around and set off now and live my life in this direction. Repentance is, is understanding for once and for all that doing it on our own terms, in our own way, isn't going to be good enough. We have to look for a new way. 
God's way. That's what it is to repent. We haven't quite finished with this repentance song yet. There's one part we haven't touched on. And that's the insistence in verses 3 and 4 that this repentance is going to hurt. By the way, not all of the, the Psalms of Ascent will be as hard to understand as this one. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist asks God what he'll do with the spirit of deceit that he finds in the repenting person. And the Jerusalem Bible puts it like this. How will God repay back the false oath of a faithless tongue with war arrows hardened over sharp, over hot charcoal? It turns out here that God is willing to hurt us if that's the thing that's going to prompt our repentance. God's work in a repenting person will hurt. It's like the surgeon's scalpel. It must cut before the healing can happen. You see, it's not going to be easy for us to discover that the whole way of life that we've been living, all that's been so precious and so dear to us is wrong, that it's empty and hollow, that it's, that it's built on lies. That's not going to be easy for us to accept and to recognize. But it's going to be necessary. And God who loves us will bring us through that process for our own good. Any hurt that's going to be worth, worth anything at all will, will be worth, worth what it's worth because it puts us back on the right path. It sets us free to follow Jesus Christ. You know, the more you read the Bible and the more you, you look for repentance, you realize that there's no other way to be with God other than repentance. God's people were born out of repentance. Think of Abraham and his call. His response to God's call was a decisive moment of repentance. God said to Abraham, come, follow me, leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the place that I will show you. Abraham needs to say no to Ur of the Chaldeans so that he can say yes to all that God calls him to. Think of God's people at the time of Moses. They need to say no to Egypt so that they can say yes to the promised land and to Canaan. Friends, our great mistake today, I think, is that we think we can say yes to God without saying no to anything. We think that we can live the life of God without repentance. I think it's very hard for us even to understand what Psalm 120 is about. We don't recognize and realize how much our society is pitted against God and how much living in that society drags us away from the, the ways of God. 
We need to recognize that, name it, and repent of it. We need to repent before we can set off on the life of pilgrimage that God calls us to. Psalm 120 doesn't allow for pilgrimage without repentance. Repentance is a prerequisite for beginning the journey. When Philip comes and talks next Sunday evening about Psalm 121, we can't hear what he says without taking seriously what's said here in Psalm 120. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. Are you fed up with the world as we find it this evening? Are you fed up with the the emptiness, the hollow life that's on offer, the deceit and the lies? Good. Great. We're in a wonderful place. We're ready to repent. We're ready to change direction. We're ready to set off in a new direction entirely. We're ready to start out on a pilgrimage. A life with God. We're ready to say a no to the world so that we can say yes to God. Let us pray.